Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the sixth day of May, 2022. We're in the midst of discussing mitochondrially-based interfering RNA and the control over oxidative phosphorylation. That's going to lead into some pretty interesting discussion in a moment here about the control of glycolysis. Now, we talked about glucose phosphate isomerase and the interconversion between glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate, and that being regulated uh, via these microRNAs that are housed in the mitochondrion, and how that allowed for a rapid control, an immediate control over the flux of carbon, because if you can convert glucose 6-phosphate into fructose 6-phosphate, it means that glycolytic pathway can be enhanced because glucose 6-phosphate can also be used for the synthesis of glycogen and via the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt uh, through intermediary metabolism making NADPH and being obviously an anabolic uh, potentiation. Likewise, if it's reversed and you make glucose 6-phosphate, that's gluconeogenic. And if you're in a gluconeogenic mode, that means that glucose, if this is in the liver, uh, because of the phosphatase after you synthesize G6P, can be um, sent into circulation, which could contribute to diabetes. So it's interesting that mitochondria actually control the enzyme, which is freely reversible. And whenever I see that, I realize how significant it means to intermediary metabolism. When you have a freely reversible enzyme, it means that thermodynamically, uh, it doesn't really matter which direction it goes. It just has to do with what's the substrate concentration. So if if one substrate concentration is high enough, it'll push via mass action the reaction in the other way. But if you're controlling the level of the polypeptide by controlling the messenger RNA, it means that if you reduce that step, that you're going to slow the flux of any glucose 6-phosphate that's been committed to the glycolytic pathway. It's going to slow that and allow for that G6P to be metabolized in those other sources I just mentioned, other, other source pathways. And it's the same thing if you are slowing down the activity when you're gluconeogenic, it means you're not going to be able to flux up to glucose 6-phosphate. But the fructose 6-phosphate could be utilized, obviously, to continue glycolysis or could be metabolized via the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. Okay. So that's why I want you to understand those freely reversible enzymes all often are overlooked or rapidly discussed in biochemistry lectures And I spend more time on them because I find them to be really fascinating. Because normally when you think about rate limiting steps being thermodynamically impossible to overturn, except for, say, uh, modification, covalent modification of the enzyme, which, of course, does control as a gatekeeper, um, allosteric regulation. But when you have a fairly reversible enzyme and you're controlling it at the level of translation of the message, it means you've already gotten beyond the control over transcription. And now you're fine-tuning the control within the cell. 
and it makes sense, uh, it makes biochemical sense and logical sense, therefore, that the mitochondria would be um, housing the microRNA that would be capable of controlling the flux through the glycolytic pathway. Because the mitochondria is the major source of ATP synthesis. And that means that's, that's an indirect way to control glycolytic flux because if you make pyruvate and you run pyruvate into the, into the mitochondria around the TCA cycle, you're apt to make a lot of NADH and a lot of FADH2, which means after their oxidation of those two nucleotides, um, you're going to make a lot of ATP. So regulating that isomerase means that the mitochondria has yet another level of control, not just the level of ATP versus ADP, or slowing down or increasing electron transport, but a control within the cytoplasm because it's controlling uh, glycolytic uh, and uh, gluconeogenic as well as octet pentosphosphate shunt uh, uh, interconversions. So <clears throat> let me uh, move on from that discussion and bring up another point here. Now, in cancer, <clears throat> we've discussed the fact that there's the Warburg effect. Warburg effect basically means you're having glycolysis when there's massive amounts of molecular oxygen available in a cell, which is either already committed to being on an oncogenic movement into cancer, uh, from precancerous to cancerous cells, or they're well beyond that, and the cancer cells are becoming metastatic. That rapid growth is what you get with glycolysis. Now, there's a lot of purpose in that, because if you have tumors, and tumors are metabolizing glucose in the presence of oxygen or even in the absence of oxygen, because you know glycolysis doesn't require molecular oxygen, it's a very inefficient way to use carbon. But what it does, in effect, is it uh, streamlines the tumor cells <clears throat> so that they can convert any incoming carbon, such as from you know, carbohydrate or from amino acid transport, from circulation, and turn everything into substrate-level ATP synthesis in the cytoplasm and not committing to the regulation that mitochondria or the nucleus interacting with the mitochondria exert over complete metabolism when it's completely oxidative. And that means that the cancer cell doesn't have to produce and maintain a lot of mitochondria or a lot of peroxisomes because the business is just to divide. And the quickest way to divide it, just use glucose. So that then translates out all the way to the whole organism because wasting is a uh, major result of a cancerous state. And wasting means all the other tissues and all the other cells are metabolizing rapidly, turning over and shuttling out respirable intermediates so that they can be sent to 
the cancer cells. That's because signaling becomes completely thwarted and the regulation of homeostasis is destroyed. So adipose tissue and muscle tissue start to decline in mass. And, and part of that has to do with sending out um, carbon sources. In, with adipose, it would be fatty acids. And of course, with muscle cells, it could be lactic acid or alanine, probably not fatty acids. So you can have the cancer cell burning all the fat um, and making acetate, and then that acetate um, being utilized to synthesize adequate amounts of um, oxidate, uh, oxaloacetic acid, so you can become gluconeogenic in the cancer cell. But the glucose doesn't leave the cancer cell because it's not a liver cell. So the glucose 6-phosphatase doesn't exist. And so what you, what you end up having in that tumor cell then is converting um, not, the, not the acetate into glucose, but the reducing power generated from beta oxidation of fatty acids to uh, glucose. So gluconeogenesis from fatty acids doesn't occur from carbon. It occurs from the um, ATP you can synthesize from NADH and FADH2. So that could be early on when mitochondria are still functional in the cancer cell. And then later on, when the cancer cell becomes completely Warburg effect glycolytic in the presence of oxygen, then fatty acids are no longer used and they stay in circulation. And then that can cause lipotoxicity, which is another hallmark of late stage metastatic cancer. So it explains a whole lot. So when you have abnormal energy metabolism uh, in a cancer cell, th that is uh, indicative of the Warburg effect. So you get reduced oxidative phosphorylation, enhanced aerobic glycolysis, and basically you're getting a complete dysfunctional glucose reprogramming in tumor cells. So we do understand a lot about how that occurs. We understand what the, what the dysregulation involves. I was just getting into it with the levels of NAD to NADH and the uptake of glucose and the burning of glucose just to uh, pyruvic acid. But also, it doesn't even have to go that far. You can get to glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate and shuttle that carbon into the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. And the NADPH that's available is enough to make new membrane during cell division of the cancer cells. So it's a complete corruption of the overall regulation of cellular division versus autophagy versus programmed cell death or versus just aging um, and the senescent process. This is how cancer then can take over the entire system and burn all that carbon uh, and then result in the wasting that finally results in the death of the organism. And so it's interesting that mitochondrial interfering RNAs play a role here. Because, they're plant, because they seem to be involved in uh, these microRNAs that are in the mitochondria in shutting down the expression of oxidative phosphorylation and electron transport chain enzymatic activity in the mitochondria. So that's a classic case of the microRNA subjugating the cell to a seizure of normal um, catabolic activity 
and thus uh, inhibiting complete oxygen consumption, which would also decrease the amount of reactive oxygen being generated and less mutations and epimutations occurring. So the cancer cells can become completely corrupted by this alteration in metabolism, basic metabolism, glucose utilization. It's fascinating. And this is, and then the tumorigenesis itself is, is that's how it's fueled. But then of course you have oncogene ex, uh, expression that no longer is regulated because the regulation occurs from such things as cell cycle mediated responses. <clears throat> and all of that fails because cell fate is controlled by intermediary metabolism, right? As I keep on emphasizing in biochemistry. Oh, yes, of course, there are transcription factors. And of course, there's cell cycle checkpoint inhibitors and activators, right? And kinases. But none of that functions appropriately when energy metabolism and cell fate alteration takes center stage. And this is what happens in cancers. It's a, um, so let me talk more about this Varberg effect. Basically, when, when it was first discovered, by Otto Warburg's lab, they they determined that altered metabolism seems to be uh, a key feature of cancer cells. And the best known of those abnormalities, now I've given you a lot more uh, floor detail than what they first knew, but the, the classical abnormality in cancer cells is the Warburg effect. And so it demonstrates an increase in glycolysis in the presence of molecular oxygen, which goes against normal regulation, understand. So <clears throat> oncogenes like P53 and C-MYC are obviously involved here because they're master regulators of metabolism. And we know this because they control cell cycle and cell cycle is linked to intermediary metabolism because of all the energy, the bioenergetics required to conduct a cell division. Right? So cancer cells indeed exhibit high rates of glucose uptake and they generate a lot of lactic acid. So that means you're not making pyruvate and you're not running that carbon into uh, both oxalacetic acid and acetyl-CoA. So you're not running a TCA cycle because you're getting dysfunctional mitochondria because of the shutting down of the expression of the oxphos. ETC system. Okay. So cancer cells don't consume more oxygen than normal tissue, even under normoxic pressures. And that then led to this observation that cancer cells actually prefer this aerobic glycolysis over complete reduction of molecular oxygen to H2O, right? Uh, oxidative phosphorylation, and, and then can, can combinate to be synthesis. So there's more detail here. It's kind of interesting. Isocitrate dehydrogenase has multiple isoforms in the cell. Isocitrate dehydrogenase isoform 1 and pyruvate kinase muscle form 2, so that's IDH1 and PKM2, as well as fumarase and succinate dehydrogenase, all of those enzymes uh, most of which are TCA cycle enzymes. Pyruvate kinase, of course, regulates 
the um, last stages of the glycolytic pathway, right? Um, leading to the TCA cycle, but there are mutations in all those genes. And it's been shown that when you get mutations in those genes, they favor the corruption of the oxygen utilization and then thus turn on the potentiation of the Weibrich effect in cancer cells. And this is what is sufficient to be prodromal to initiate tumors. So in order to understand this, we have to bring up a couple of different um, proteins. <clears throat> there are changes in the level of the hypoxia-inducible factor, that's HIF, HIF1-alpha in particular. And those changes are involved in the oncogenicity because of mutations in succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase. So hypoxic stress is a common phenomenon in tumor cells even though there's plenty of molecular oxygen. It's because the cells are dividing so rapidly that the angiogenesis can't keep up with all the cellular production. So the core of a tumor can become hypoxic, okay? even, in, even though there's plenty of oxygen to run oxyphosphorylation, at least initially. But you do become hypoxic. And so the predominant regulatory factor is, of course, HIF. Uh, so when you get hypoxia, you, you cause the expression of hypoxia-inducible factor, which then is going, to mo is going to control the transcriptional level genes necessary to be able to convert from a normoxic environment to a hypoxic environment. So under normal oxygen, HIF1-alpha is actually degraded. That transcription factor is degraded by a von Hippel-Lindau-mediated ubiquitinylation pathway, the classical Hippolanda-Lindau ubiquitinylation pathway. Indeed, the proteasome involved, of course. Now, in that reaction, the proline residues, certain proline residues in the transcription factor HIF1-alpha need to be hydroxylated before HIF1-alpha is recognized by the VHL system, by the ubiquitinylation system. So proline residues need to be hydroxylated before HIF1-alpha can be degraded via ubiquitinylation. So the hydroxylation of HIF1-alpha is catalyzed by an enzyme called, because it's on proline residues, proline hydroxylase. Those are also nicknamed PhDs. PhDs are a family of alpha-ketoglutarate-dependent enzymes. So a proline hydroxylase requires alpha-ketoglutarate. Okay. So during the process of HIF-1-alpha hydroxylation, which remember is the precessive stage to destroy the transcription factor, right? During the process of its hydroxylation, the substrate alpha-KG becomes oxidized, and that is accompanied with the generation of, of course, succinic acid, which is the product of the reaction. So when you get mutations in succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase, there's an increase in the accumulation, because there are mutations in those enzymes, 
of succinate and fumarate, okay? Because those, those are the substrates for the reactions. So both of those metabolites can inhibit the enzymatic activity of the proline hydroxylase, resulting in reduced degradation of HIF-1-alpha and therefore an increased expression of certain uh, genes which can be involved in oncogenesis. So the TCA, the tricarboxylic acid cycle shuts down. So no nascent NADH peroxidative phosphorylation can proceed. Therefore, glycolysis reigns. Mutating SDH and fumarase will build up succinate and fumarate, which, as I said, will block the PhD. PhD normally takes alpha ketoglutarate, converts it to succinate. At the same time, carbon dioxide is produced. So in the normal pathway, HIF-1 would be hydroxylated on the proline residues. And then it would associate with the ubiquitinylation pathway, the von Hippel, and would be degraded. Now, the target genes for HIF-1-alpha, guess what they are? Glycolytic, angiogenic, and cell proliferative. <laughs> so because you have high levels of HIF-1-alpha, because you're not degrading it, by using um, the uh, normal processing through the TCA cycle, and you're building up succinate fumarate rather than metabolizing them, you understand. If one alpha increases in concentration as a transcription factor, and the genes which are opened up via chromatin remodeling, retailing, are the genes that code for enzymes and glycolysis, angiogenesis, and cell proliferation. So cell cycle and uh, intermediary metabolism, as well as lipid metabolism for angiogenesis. That includes sterile response, uh, um, binding protein factor genes, okay? Okay. So DNA methylation involves two different processes. The addition and removal of a methyl group at the fifth position of cytosine or the sixth position of adenine in DNA. Okay, so DNA methylation, when, it, when methylation is proceeding, you're going to methylate fifth carbon in cytosine and the sixth in adenine. And those, both of those nucleotides are going to be part of the polymer DNA. So DNA 5-methylcytosine, 5-MC, is clearly the most prevalent DNA methylation modification, at least in eukaryotic genomes that have been studied. And that primarily occurs on cytosines that are immediately proximal to guanine nucleotides. So we call those, again, remember, CPG sites. And when there's a bunch of CPGs together, we call those CPG islands. And those tend to be clustered in proximal regions called promoters or enhancers, or sometimes splice-associated variations uh, for genes that are going to be actively expressed. So the presence of 5-methylcytosine is generally believed, in general, again, with all the caveats when, I'm, with that, when I say 
in general with quotation marks. Normally 5MC, when it builds up in DNA, is classically considered to prevent transcription factors from binding to the promoter region. And remember that has to do with that reacting with that, remember that carbon hydrogen bond in the methyl group, holding on to that sp2 hybridization so that you can't do any reactivity with that carbon right? remember that so <clears throat> that will suppress gene expression dna six adenine methylation that's six ma has been discovered now for over 10 years but it seems to be just as potent as in every genetic modification and it's well described in the human genome. And it indeed seems to be more involved in normal mammalian development. Okay. So it's another factor to consider. So the modulation of DNA methylation in mammals includes DNA 5 methylcytosine. The methylation site, again, is the fifth carbon position of cytosine. Well, 6MA modification as there occurs at the sixth position of adenine, as I said. The methylation marks are established by writers. These would be DNA methyltransferases. And in the case of adenosine, N6 adenosine methyltransferase 1. Those are the two enzymes responsible. Modifications are identified by readers, and the readers are proteins which have a domain called a methyl, for example, methyl CPG binding domain, simply called MBDs, methyl binding domain proteins. And we're going to talk about a specific uh, protein that uh, is in that family of MBDs very soon. Erasers of an epigenetic signature uh, left by methyltransferases. Erasers are proteins that include the TET and the ALK KBH1. And they can make all the marks of that methylation invalid by oxidizing or by completely removing the methyl group. Okay. <clears throat> so there's some detail to that. And we've talked about it in the past. Now, methylation mechanisms, again, um, 6MC versus 6MA require unique enzymologies. So it's going to be different gene uh, products. 5-methyl-C methylation is all DNMT work. And there are at least three in humans, DMT1, DMT3A, and DMT3B. DMT1 is primarily responsible for maintenance methylation. And that's a status that's maintained during mitosis while DMT3A and 3B work for de novo or newly epigenetically written methylation, okay? 5-methyl-C methylation can be converted to a non-methylated red pattern of epigenetic structure by oxidizing that methyl group. And, it and the change is a 5-hydroxymethylcytosine. So 5-hydroxymethylcytosine will prevent that methylation 
epigenetic signature from being read. Now, the enzyme responsible for that oxidation, which results in the hydroxylation, is an enzyme which has an unusual history and therefore it has a very unusual name. It's called the 1011 translocation enzyme or the TET enzyme. And there are three of those, TET1, TET2, and TET3. So <clears throat> TET will take 5-methylcytosine and, and make 5-hydroxymethylcytosine. TET can further react with 5-hydroxymethylcytosine, making 5-fumaryl cytosine, or excuse me, not fumaryl, formula cytosine, right? And then finally, 5-carboxylic cytosine. So you completely oxidize. You go from a methyl group to a hydroxy, to a formal group, to a carboxylic acid, okay? Now, each of those can be further metabolized. 5-hydroxymethylcytosine can be converted to 5-hydroxymethyluracil. 5-formulcytosine can also be converted uh, via an enzyme called TDG. And what that will lead to is a response known as base excision repair, which, which repairs DNA. And what you'll get is the resynthesis of cytosine, non-modified. Likewise, the 5-carboxycytosine, remember you have a carboxylic acid on there now, not a, 